following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody this morning. I love seeing everybody's smiling face first thing in the morning. It's great to be here, great to be in God's house. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5 as we continue the Sermon on the Mount. As you're turning there, before we get started... I just want to let y'all know just what a blessing last week was to me. Oh man, all the love you guys showed. I just loved all the cards and, and uh, sweet little notes and had lots of nice goodies as well. I think I gained about 10 pounds last week, which is awesome. I don't think I'll have to pay to eat at Taco Bell for the next year, so that's great. Uh, but no, I just wanted y'all to know how thankful I am for you. And like I said last week, man, it's such a blessing to be your pastor. I just love being your pastor. It is the privilege of a lifetime to get to do that. And I just love being with y'all. And I just want y'all to know, too, what a privilege and a joy it is to serve with the team that we have here. Do y'all know we have, like, the best team around? Man, I'm so thankful for Mike and Stacy and Craig and Gina and Caleb and Katie. We are just so blessed here at Welford. So as we have Pastor Appreciation Month, I just want, them, I want you guys to know just how grateful I am for these guys. And man, I'm just so thankful that we get to serve together. Well, on January 8th, 1956, that is a date that is one of the most horrific yet beautiful days in modern missions history. Because on that date, five Christian missionaries were brutally martyred on a small makeshift landing strip in the middle of a river in the jungles of Ecuador. Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, they had a burden to take the good news of Jesus to the Huarani people who had a reputation for viciously attacking and killing foreigners and also one another. Some estimate that at this time, the murder rate among this tribe was at 60% largely spurred on by an endless cycle of revenge killings. So leading up to this fateful day, the missionaries had spent weeks flying over the area in a small plane and dropping gifts with a bucket and a rope. And via a loudspeaker, they would call down to the tribespeople saying, we like you, we are your friends. And the Huarati people began to reciprocate. They started sending gifts back up to the missionaries through this bucket attached to the plane. So finally, the men decided that it was time to make contact on the ground. And so they landed on that strip in the river. And initially, the contact was friendly. But if you're familiar with this story, you know things quickly went sour. And all five missionaries were ultimately impaled with spears. Years later, members of this tribe would recount how when the missionaries had the chance to defend themselves with a gun, they instead shot a warning shot in the air. It was even said that they could have easily run away into the jungle and escaped, but instead they stood there and cried out, we just came to meet you. We aren't going to hurt you. Why are you killing us? And if that response weren't shocking enough, the story of these missionaries only grows more shocking when we see the responses of their families. Because instead of retaliating against the tribe, instead of withdrawing from the mission field altogether and returning to the United States, members of their families actually decided they would move to that river basin and further engage the tribe with the gospel of Jesus. Steve Saint, the son of the slain missionary Nate Saint, 
recounted this. He said, less than three years after the massacre, Aunt Rachel and Jim Elliott's widow, Elizabeth, had made contact and were living among the tribe. There they practiced basic medicine and began to notate an oral language in hopes of someday translating the scriptures into their language. And listen, as a result of this, many in that tribe ultimately came to know King Jesus, including the very ones who had speared the missionaries on that day. And something radical began to happen among the tribe. Steve told the story of one tribe's man. He says, Gekita was an unusually old man in a tribe that killed friends and relatives with the same zeal and greater frequency than they did their enemies. But now he is nearing 80 years of age and he has seen his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren grow up without the constant fear of spearings. He has repeatedly asserted that all he wants to do is go to heaven and live peacefully with the five men who came to tell him about Wangangi, creator God. Indeed, when one of the men who killed the missionaries, Minkai, died himself just a few years ago, Steve referred to him, this man who was partially responsible for killing his own father, Steve said this, he called him a kind, gentle, fun-loving man says he is one of my dearest friends in all the world. He even stated that Minkai had become something like a grandfather to Steve's children, Nate's grandchildren. Steve said, only those who understand the transforming power of Christ's message could understand our friendship. Individuals, families, an entire tribe transformed because five missionaries and their families broke a cycle of violence by coming in peace, by making peace. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice something important here. As D.A. Carson points out, this beatitude does not hold out a blessing to the peaceful, nor to those who yearn for peace, but for the peacemakers, those who actually make peace, those who actively work for peace. Now, you'll recall that the biblical concept of peace isn't just some serene, calm feeling. No, it's a concept that goes all the way back to Eden. The Hebrew word shalom, which refers to the perfect harmony that existed between God and man and all creation. To a time when everything was in right relationship with one another because everything was in right relationship with God. But that shalom ended when Adam and Eve opted to follow the way of the serpent rather than the God who made them. And we've lived in the fallout ever since where peace once reigned, conflict now pervades. We see warring nations, broken systems, fractured families, estranged friendships, alienated individuals. We were warned that the day we ate from that tree, we would surely die. And we see that death every day. Physical death, yes, but also the death of community, the demise of families, the deterioration of marriages, the assassination of character, and the withering of our souls. Death gives way to death, for that is the wage of sin. Oh, but then came 
Jesus. Indeed, Scripture calls him the Prince of Peace, and he lives up to that name. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that what? Brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And friends, Christ didn't do this when we were his friends. No, Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Indeed, Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified by faith, listen, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel for all who believe that though you were far off from God, though you were his enemy, though you deserved his wrath, though your just punishment was death, listen, in Christ, God has come near, not to pour out his wrath on you, but to take his wrath upon himself and to make peace, not to execute you as his enemy, but to make you his Friend, and more than that, get this, to adopt you as his son. Indeed, that's what Jesus says right here. He says, they shall be called sons of God. Now, this is significant, not only because Paul tells us in Galatians 3.29 that this makes us heirs according to the promise that God made Abraham and fulfilled in Christ. No, we see it's also significant here in another way. As Z.A. Carson explained, in Jewish thought, son often bears the meaning partaker of the character of. So Carson notes that the emphasis here is more on character than on position. So do you see what Jesus is getting at here? He's saying in light of the fact that God is in his very nature shalom and has made shalom with you, you as his son should likewise reflect his character by taking his shalom and by making shalom wherever you go. In other words, as Christians, we do not join the world in its conflict and agitation. Instead, 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and has now given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we are to make peace as he has made peace. This is the mission of the good life. Because in a fallen world... It is not a matter of if we will encounter conflict, but when. Because when you get one or more sinners in a room together, what is bound to happen? Sin. There will be conflict at some point. And in our own fallenness, all of us have a tendency to respond to conflict in one of two ways. We either go with fight or flight. Or as Ken Sand points out in his book, The Peacemaker, we tend to be peace breakers or peace fakers. Peace peace breakers, he says, are more interested in winning a conflict than in preserving a relationship. He says they view conflict as a chance to assert their rights, to control others, to take advantage of their situation. See, peace breakers go on the attack, whether with their fists or through their words. They go for the kill destroying physical life, or damaging relationships and reputations. Thank goodness the missionaries didn't respond this way. When they went to the tribe that killed their family members, they could have retaliated. In fact, that's what the tribesmen feared. They feared that they would continue the practice that they did, that they would just constantly go into revenge-kill mode. Instead, they went with a message of forgiveness. Peace 
fakers, on the other hand, are more interested, Ken San says, in avoiding conflict than in resolving conflict. So see, those with this bent tend to want to give the illusion that there's peace rather than actually working for genuine peace. So they're either stuck in denial, acting like nothing is wrong, or they just withdraw or flee whenever conflict comes up. So they either tend to be a doormat, letting people get away with all kinds of bad behaviors, or they are always looking for a way out when things get hard. And often in the church, we can let this masquerade as holiness, right? Because it looks like they are staying out of conflict, but they are not acting in holiness because they are not dealing with the problem in a godly way. And in their passivity, they allow sin to continue and even triumph. Thank goodness the missionaries didn't go with this idea either, right? They didn't go in and pretend like it was no big deal that they killed their husbands and fathers and brothers. No, they went in and they called them to repentance. Repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. See, neither of these approaches, peace-breaking, peace-faking, neither of them leads to the way of flourishing. Because we are not called to be peace-breakers. We are not called to be peace-fakers. We are called to be peace-makers. See, as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to have our hearts aligned with the heart and the will of God, as those who are called to be merciful, we seek to bring peace by working for justice and mercy in the spheres that God has entrusted to us. And when we begin to have this perspective, Sam says conflict is no longer an inconvenience or an occasion to force our will on others, but rather, listen, an opportunity to demonstrate the love and the power of God in our lives. Or to return to our beatitude here, when people see us living in a state of shalom, it points them to the God of shalom who can likewise bring them to shalom. Church, we are the peace makers. And we are called to make peace in at least three ways. The first one is this. We ourselves need to make peace with God. We ourselves need to make peace with God. See, left to ourselves, we can never experience the shalom of God. Why? Because we are cut off from shalom, both as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, but also because of our own willful disobedience. As a result, Colossians 1.21 says we were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We were doing evil deeds. Friends, that's the exact opposite of peace. But by God's grace, verse 20 says that through Jesus, listen, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Listen, making peace by the blood of his cross. Indeed, verse 22 says that because of Christ's work on the cross, all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus are now reconciled to God and will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So many in the world today are restless. They are longing for this sense of peace, and they're looking for it in all kinds of things. Relationships, nature, drugs, alcohol, money, sex, politics, even religious experiences and traditions. But friends, you are right to long for peace. It is what you were created for, but you will not find peace in any of those things. See, the reason for your restlessness is you were cut off from the source of rest. So the only solution, in the words of Augustine, is to find your rest in 
him. Indeed, Jesus says this in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he says. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And listen, you will find rest for your souls. Friend, if you want to know rest, if you want to know peace, you need to know Jesus. Indeed, before Jesus returned to heaven after his resurrection, listen to what he promised his disciples in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In this same passage, he promises the Holy Spirit is going to come. And Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit fills us with life and peace. Romans 8, 6, and joy and peace. Romans 15, 13. Isaiah 32, 15 to 17 explains that when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us, listen to this, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And listen to this, the effect of righteousness, that is lining ourselves up with the will of God, the effect of righteousness will be what? Peace. The result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. Friends, if you want to know peace, you need to know the God of all peace. And if you want to know the God of all peace, you need to know his word. Psalm 119, 165 tells us, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Psalm 119.50 likewise says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. We find the peace of God when we seek him in the word of God. And as we seek and find peace in his word, we experience his peace through prayer. 1 Peter 5.7 tells us to cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Philippians 4, 5 to 7 says, The Lord is at hand, so therefore do not be anxious about anything. But in, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And listen to the result of this. As you let your requests be known to God, verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Friend, if this morning you are looking for peace, oh, your search is over. This is where you find it. Isaiah 26.3 says this, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Isn't that good? Because he trusts in you. You are a peacemaker if you are in Christ. Make peace with your God who has come to make peace with you. And if you make peace with him, listen, he will not treat you as a slave. He will treat you as a son. That's what he says here. You will be called sons of God. So we are peacemakers because we make peace with God. But second, we need to make peace with others. We need to make peace with others. And this starts with repenting of a few things. First, we want to repent of being a peace breaker. 
See, because remember, peace breakers instigate conflict by starting it, or they intensify conflict by retaliating. So peace breakers disrupt the peace of their homes, their families, their workplaces, their churches, leaving a trail of brokenness in their wake. All to get what they want, whether it's property or to end up on top or to prove that they're right or just to get their way. They are the disruptors of peace, listen, because they lack peace in their own heart. James 4, 1 to 2 asks this, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Friends, this has no place among the people of God. Instead, Hebrews 12, 14 tells us, listen, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you see the connection here? He's saying striving for peace is connected to pursuing holiness. And he says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Likewise, Psalm 34, 13 to 14 instructs us to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. It says turn away from evil and do good. And what do you do instead? You seek peace and pursue it. Romans 14, 19 commands us to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Ephesians 4, 2-3 urges us to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Listen, you cannot be a divisive and contentious person and call yourself a Christian. Why? Because an angry and bitter person is not aligned with God. James 1.20 says this, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In this spirit, King Solomon advises us in Proverbs 22, he says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Friend, listen, if you are the type to escalate tensions rather than to calm them, if you connive and manipulate to get your way, if you attack, begrudge, and avenge, listen to me, you are in a scary place. Why? Because that shows the shalom of God is not in you. And if the shalom of God is not in you, then you are not in shalom with God. You need to repent. You can't make peace if you're always breaking peace. But second, you can't make peace if you're faking peace. So we need to repent of being a peace faker as well. Whereas peace breakers instigate and intensify conflict, peace fakers think they're averting conflict, but in actuality, they're only perpetuating conflict because they ignore it or they um, enable it. Like the false prophets of old, they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They may even think they're being nice, but by failing to address the conflict, they are only enabling sin to continue. And you can understand the temptation to be a peace faker, can't you? 
I mean, if someone is just going to pitch a fit and make your life a nightmare anytime they don't get their way, then the easiest thing to do is just get out of the way, right? But this isn't peace. And it certainly isn't flourishing. In fact, it just promotes injustice and impedes mercy, which we know that God says he will not bless. Indeed, by allowing someone to mistreat another person, you become a culprit in the injustice being committed. Instead, we are called to do the loving thing of gently correcting someone with truth from God's word. Ephesians 4.15 says that we are to speak the truth to one another in love. James 5.19-20 even says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Galatians 6.1 likewise says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Listen, the most hateful thing you can do to somebody is just allow them to continue in their sin. Why? Because you know it leads to destruction. So you'd have to really hate somebody to let them continue in their sin. Whereas the loving thing to do is to gently correct with the truth of God. So we are called not to fake peace or to break peace. Instead, we are called to make peace. Listen to this quote from Ken Sand's book. I think this is super helpful. It says, when I resort to an escape response, which is peace faking, I am generally focusing on me. I am looking for what is easy, convenient, or non-threatening for myself. But when I use an attack response, that is, I'm a peace breaker, I am generally focusing on you. I'm blaming you. I'm expecting you to give in and solve the problem. But when I use the peacemaking response, my focus is on us. We are in this together. I am aware of everyone's interest in the dispute. Listen, especially God's. Because we want to handle this according to God's word. And I am working toward mutual responsibility in solving a problem. So we are called to seek to be peacemakers. We don't instigate and intensify conflict. Neither do we ignore or enable conflict. No, instead we seek to resolve conflict by promoting righteousness and mercy. And we do this in a couple of ways. First of all, we do this by overlooking minor offenses and being quick to forgive others. We need to have wisdom to realize that not everything needs to be made into a big deal, right? Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. See, as we grow to be poor in spirit and meek, in humility, we learn to hold our temper in check and not to respond in kind. Proverbs 15, 18 cautions, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Likewise, Proverbs 51 says, a soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. So we learn, not to, or we learn to pour water rather than gasoline on the fire of conflict, right? That's the first step. We need to be quick to forgive, quick to overlook minor offenses. But second, if you find yourself in a more significant conflict with someone and you are the one at fault, even if it's partially at fault, right? You need to be quick to ask 
for forgiveness from someone. And if you find yourself in conflict, and to the best of your knowledge, you are not the one at fault, even then, God calls you to do whatever you can to restore peace. Matthew 5, 23 to 24 says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, it says, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You see what's going on here? He's saying, before you come to worship, before you make your offering, before you take of the Lord's Supper, if there is something between you and another brother or sister, man, you need to seek to make peace. Now, you can't control how somebody responds, but you still have that responsibility to provide the opportunity for peace. Romans 11, or 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Matthew 18, 15 is where Jesus gives us the pattern for how we make peace. Listen to what he says, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. He says, don't go talk about them behind their back. Don't rile people up about it. Don't get people to take sides. Don't broadcast their sin. Don't attack them. No, that's the way of the peace breaker. But neither do you allow your brother to continue in sin. That would just make you a peace faker. And I want you to see this. Whether you're a peace breaker or you're a peace faker, you are doing violence to somebody's soul. If you're a peace breaker, you're attacking them, right? But if you're a peace faker, you're allowing them to continue down the path that leads to destruction. Jesus says, you've got to have a better way. The right thing to do is to go to him alone and to seek to make peace. Because your brother is worth more to you than your own comfort. Friends, this is the mark of the people of God. We pursue shalom. We cultivate a culture of shalom in our homes, in our circles, in our churches. In fact, God takes the shalom of his people so seriously that he tells his church to guard and protect this shalom vigorously. Listen to what he says in Titus 3.10. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person, listen, is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Similarly, Jesus went on in Matthew 18 to say that if a professing believer refuses to repent of his sin after a private conversation, then you should take two to three witnesses to approach the brother and plead with him to repent. But if he still does not repent, Jesus says he should be removed from the church until he does. Why? Because God takes shalom seriously. So seriously, in fact, that he laid down his own life to restore it, and he will one day destroy the initial and supreme disruptor of peace, that ancient serpent and foe, Satan. Listen to Romans 16, 20. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
Now, that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? The God of all peace is going to crush? Like, what is that about? But it is no contradiction. Why? Because Satan is the enemy of peace. And God will annihilate him. If God takes peace that seriously, we as his people should take it seriously. Listen, because this coming peace that will again set all things right in the universe is to be experienced right here and right now in the life of God's church. The people of God should reflect the shalom of God. That's why Paul says this to the church in Colossians 3, 12 to 15. Listen to this. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, he says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And listen, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. See, the people of God are marked by the peace of God. Why? Because it says the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. So if we lack the peace of God, we have to wonder if we are truly the people of God. Because the people of God are peacemakers. We need to make peace with God. We need to make peace with others. And finally, we need to lead others to do the same. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, or verse 20 tells us we are ambassadors. We're representatives for Christ. Why? Because God is making his appeal through us for others to be reconciled to God. Do you see what's happening? Every time you share the gospel with somebody, you are offering them the opportunity to experience the shalom of God. Romans 10, 14 to 15 further calls us to actively pursue this ministry of reconciliation. It asks this, verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul here is quoting Isaiah 52, 7. Listen to the rest of what Isaiah had to say in that verse. He said, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Listen, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, this is the mission of the people of God. This is the mission of the good life, to take the peace of God where it has not yet been. As God has made peace with us, so we learn to rest and dwell in that peace and to make peace with others. Because where we go, he goes. Where he goes, the kingdom goes. And where the kingdom goes, shalom 
follows. It happened in a small Middle Eastern nation 2,000 years ago. It happened in the deepest jungles of Ecuador some 66 years ago. And it's happening in some of the darkest and most oppressive areas all around the world today. And friend, if it can happen there, it can happen to you. It can happen in your home. It can happen in our church. It can happen in our community. Because the peace of God has come. The peace of God is coming. The peace of God is here. And flourishing are you when you make peace. For you shall be called a son of God. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.